Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Hi, everyone. This week, we are talking joy at work. We're talking culture and we're talking gravitas. We're really looking forward to the conversation and delighted to say that joining us today is organisational psychologist, senior visiting fellow at the London School of Economics and CEO of Coach Advisor, Dr. Rebecca Newton. Rebecca, welcome. Thanks, Dan. Great to be with you. Hi, Rebecca. Welcome to the show. I mean, wow, how many different things you're involved in. Could you give us a sense of what each of those roles means on a day-to-day basis? Yes, sure, Mary. So as an academic, I spend time lecturing in management practice at the LSE. I also am part of the faculty team on executive education programs at Harvard Law School and do research and writing as an academic. And then The majority of my work is as a practitioner, so advising leaders and teams how to create healthy cultures, strong teams, how to move forward, and as you mentioned, you know, how to enjoy work as well as performing well. Fantastic. Well, hopefully we'll all take at least one good learning from today's episode. Rebecca, we were saying before we went on air, you've been working with LCP for about 15 years now. Yes, it's been, that's a long time, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> counting. Yeah, it's a real privilege. So I spent a lot of time over the years with many of the LCP partners and various teams across the business. Yeah, 15 years. It's it's wonderful. It's a great place to, to work. Great. Well, it's really good to have you with us today. We're hoping to get into all, all sorts of questions there. It's going to be really interesting. Just to kick us off, what's one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? Ooh, just one thing. (laughs) So many things, Dan. Well, as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm originally from Australia, but my accent never goes away. What else can I tell you? I live in London. I've got three little kids and a puppy, and the puppy is more work than the three little kids put together. (laughs) 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 Lots of fun, bringing joy into the family, right? I'm sure. What breed is the puppy? It's a lab cocker spaniel cross. So I thought I'll be so friendly and calm, and instead it's Super friendly and excited all the time, but with the strength of a Labrador. <laughs> all Excellent. Fun. Yeah. And you're right, aren't you, that dogs really do bring joy to the to the family and to the household. So, and mud and yeah, everything else. <laughs> Brilliant. So, Rebecca, should we start with the kind of main content? You've been working with senior leaders on leadership and culture for 20 years. Really interested in what changes you've seen over that period. That's quite a big period, I guess, for evolution of business practice. So do you have any sort of key themes you can pull out? Yeah, there's a few things that really stood out to me as shifts in terms of the way we see leadership and culture. The first I'd say is what we consider a great leader to look like. So, you know, a couple of decades ago, I think we were quite, there are a lot of stereotypes around what we call it leadership emergence, which is what a perception, what we perceive a leader should look like. Now, to be clear, that's different from leadership effectiveness in terms of what makes a great leader. And we could talk about that. But what we expect from a great leader has really changed. And I think that's changed a lot in recent years as well. So in terms of, you know, not accepting kind of an authoritarian style as much, a much more coaching and mentoring approach, 
you know, of course, and importantly, a huge focus on inclusion in the workplace and that being a leader's responsibility. And the other big shift that I have seen is around culture, that having a healthy culture is the responsibility of everyone, not just HR, which is where it used to sit, right? Culture used to be an HR topic. Now, HR has a really important role to play in terms of fostering strong, healthy cultures in the workplace. But there's a real recognition now that that is everyone's responsibility rather than just something that sits in one pocket of the organization. Yeah. And do you have a feel for why that's, we're now 20 years on from when you started doing this work and it's very well expected and understood that good culture is better for business outcomes, no matter what the business is is operating in. Do you have a sense of why that shift of thought process has changed? Is there lots of academic evidence that proves that? Or is it more people have just woken up to the fact that they're working with real other humans and it's the right thing to do or both? I think it's a combination of things. There definitely is a lag effect between what we see in academia and in the research coming out. And the more research we have and the more accessible that research evidence becomes of the difference, say, for example, the topic of organizational culture, then the more seriously it's taken in business, obviously. But, you know, there are there are real shifts as well in terms of the public's expectations of leaders and the way that we, you know, leaders are held to account publicly now as well for the culture of their organizations. So I think that leaders are really mindful that it is their responsibility as well as just realizing the impact that we can all have on each other. You know, work and if we look over the last few years, work and non-work have become so much more blurred that I don't think that we could ever think, you know, to to talk about the topic, say, of joy at work, for example, one of the reasons that's important is that if we're really unhappy in the workplace or if we're in a really toxic environment in the workplace, it's not like we just shut down. We just switch off our laptop or we walk out the door and then everything is fine in our personal life. I mean, that's never been the case. You know, we've always had that impact. One area of our life always impacts another but we've become more aware of that in recent years as well, I think. Mm-hmm. And certainly I've became more aware of that during lockdown when everyone's at home and you're seeing the inside of people's houses, but you're also having to be, you're either having to be very strict yourself about where your lines are. I'm working now, I'm not working then, or you struggle with where that line is and people were not seeing that line. As you say, it was it was much more blurred. Yeah, so on this question of, of what's changed over sort of 20 years, I, I do sometimes wonder if the, the financial crisis in 2008, I mean, it, maybe it's a bit obvious, but it's sort of maybe often cited as a bit of a turning point in how people viewed, I don't know, business and, and sort of capitalism generally. And, and one, one, one interesting anecdote on that I've seen recently is is the sort of the legacy of some business leaders like Jack Welch, for example, at General Electric, who was kind of sort of almost lionized in the 20th century. That's kind of being quite heavily reinterpreted now as in a quite a negative way, I think, because he sort of, you know, cut corners and fudged targets and created in some ways a bad culture. And so there's been a real reinterpretation, I think, of of some figures previously that were sort of helped put on a pedestal and that's been revisited in, in good ways. Well said, Dan. Well said. What do you think is the most common thing that leaders tend to get a little bit wrong when you first start, maybe you first start working with them? 
Oh, that's an interesting question. I don't know that I would say that they get it wrong. <laughs> I mean, we're all just doing the best we can, right? One thing that I notice a lot is that people feel quite overwhelmed with the sheer volume of responsibility of leadership and feel quite reactive, right? So diaries are filled with meetings. How many, you know, emails can you possibly respond to in one day? And then often reporting and then I get my real work done at night. (laughs) So feeling like I just have to be, I'm just pulled into things all day, every day, but I don't really have a sense of control over that or essentially knowing that it's not really sustainable. My concern is that sometimes if we feel like that for too long, if that's our kind of sustained working practice, then we're not prioritizing the things that are our responsibilities and that we're meant to be driving because I think that our diaries will always fill up and we will always be in demand. So there's no, there's no easy answer to that, obviously, but I do encourage the leaders that I work with to build in thinking time. Like I said, when was the last time that you just took an hour out to think about all the things that you're responsible for, all the things that you're meant to be prioritizing, you know, in a professional services context, in a consulting context, it's so easily filled with what clients need or, you know, whether it's customers, whoever it might be. But I encourage leaders to try and take at least an hour a week, ideally at the start of the week, you know, and you're kind of your best brain time when you know when that is for yourself, to just look, to be reflective across your work, across all the areas, across the teams that you're responsible for, to know when and where to put your energy and your effort and your priorities so that your priorities move forward. You're not just constantly responding to other people's. But of course, the job of a leader is to respond to other people and to support and equip them. So it's just about finding that balance, making sure that you are taking that time out as well. That's one thing. Yeah. I can see Dan's been smiling as you've been saying that, Rebecca. And I've certainly, from from putting meetings in Dan's diary, I know he he does try and exercise his practice, don't you, Dan? You've, you've quite often got it sort of planning time at the start of a week. Yeah, I, I do try and do that a little bit, but it's a constant battle to try and keep hold of it. It was, it was funny. I was smiling when you were saying try and do it at the start of the week. I was going to say, what, you mean 4 p.m. on a Friday is not a good time to try and have big thoughts about where you should be spending your, your priorities and your time? Funnily enough, not. Well, so. Dan, if that is your best thinking time, I mean, hats off to you. I don't know anyone else where it's their best thinking time. But. No. no. And, and it is about protecting that time, isn't it? Because you can put it in your diary and as, I almost feel like you need to label it as something that isn't clear that, that you're giving yourself thinking time because if you if you label it thinking time someone will look at your diary and think yes. oh that's fine I can interrupt that time it's like I don't know if you've seen the Microsoft Outlook can give you the focus time slots where they look ahead to your diary and they they see what looks like it's free and they block it as focus time but everyone knows what focus time means everyone knows that a machine just said that you looked like you were free at that point and no one respects it anymore and I just think yeah you you sort of need to trick the system a bit to actually protect that time for, for yourself. Yeah you absolutely do and the other thing is even blocking out things that we need to move forward you know so often the things that are really important for us often don't have hard deadlines and therefore a sense of urgency. And it's quite de-energizing to get to the end of a 
of a season, whether that's a month or two or whether that's the end of a quarter, and to think, gosh, I haven't moved forward any of those strategic priorities. And that's just simply feeling that, you know, well, simply just not making space for those things. So I think if we can put those things in first, then we do get energy from feeling like we're moving our important priorities forward. Yeah. Just to pick up on one word you used there, which I really like, you used the word season. I don't know if that was really you know, a big part of what, what you talk to people about, but I, I love that idea because I do sometimes think that the in the professional services world, the year can become a real continuum that just one month flows into the next and having some way of discretizing it a little bit, beyond something bigger than a week, maybe bigger than a month, I don't know, but smaller than a year or a decade sort of thing, where you can intentionally try and use each one of them somehow and, and frame it around it. I, I think it's quite a powerful concept just in that, whereas it, it takes work to do because naturally, you know, things just flow on one to the next. And unless you're really careful, you don't take that time out to, to, to prioritize you. Yeah. And to be clear and to link in the research, you know, you mentioned before about joy at work, and that's one of the things that I do help my clients with and and a reason for that is not just that it's a nice to have or that we should enjoy our work but you know joy has an impact on our cognitive functioning it impacts our performance right so as leaders we need to be mindful of that for ourselves our own energy our own enjoyment of work it impacts the teams the culture that we're creating because leaders shape culture so much and so one of the things that we know, and I use the word joy intentionally as opposed to happiness, right? So these are two separate kind of constructs. And one of the differences is that we can experience joy and moments of joy through times of pressure, through uncertainty, through grief or difficulty, whereas happiness I think of as more of a kind of a more long-term state for, again, that season that you're in. But so we, it is important to intentionally build in those moments of joy and to think about how you're enjoying your work and where you have energy at work. And so to talk about seasons, one of the things that we know is that joy isn't just about the silly, fun things that happen and creating. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm all for those things, but it's not, it's not just about that. Joy actually comes in a work context in a large part where we're achieving meaningful goals, right? So where we're working hard and we're feeling success in terms of moving forward. And so I think a season is a great way of thinking about that. Like for this season, what would I love to accomplish? Whether that's in my own kind of personal career development, whether that's for the the company that I'm running, whether that's for the team that I'm responsible for, what would I like to move forward in this season? Now, you can think of it in quarters. That tends to work as well. But, you know, so much of our life is running quarters that it's quite nice to separate it out and to make that season whatever it is for you. So, And I quite like the idea that you can control what length the season is. I can't control how long a quarter is. I can't control the fact that my clients want reporting every quarter or there are meetings every quarter. But what I can control is what I define myself as a, as a season. Rebecca, I wondered if we could just, I mean, staying on the subject of joy at, at work, and it's just such a great word, isn't it? I think this is kind of, for, for me, it feels like a bit of an, an onomatopoeic word somehow. It just, you, you know exactly the feeling that, it, that you're describing there. But you've also used the word energy, and presumably you've used the word energy fairly intentionally as well. So I wondered if you could just explain sort of the difference between joy and energy and, and, and where they sort of sit in the, in the complex nature of, of a business leader. 
Yeah. So joy, I think of as an effective emotion in response to something that we're experiencing, that we experience as positive energy. You know, we talk a lot about energy around our health. We need to be mindful of our psychological well-being as well. And that is another shift that we see in business now, right? Is that we're responsible for our own psychological well-being, but we are also responsible for each other's and for being mindful of the impact that we have on other people. When we talk about strengths in the workplace, you know, and the strengths approach is is a really robust framework now. There's been a lot of evidence around how a strengths-based workplace, you know, has higher performance, higher engagement, high levels of trust, organizational citizenship behaviors, all good things. And strengths-based leaders generate these type of outcomes. What we mean by strengths-based is not what you're good at, it's what gives you energy. And the thing to be really mindful of here is that we are so unique when it comes to what gives us energy. So, for example, some people are really energized by strategic thinking, strategic mindedness. Other people might be really energized by being results focused and getting things done or detail orientation or flexibility. Some people are really energized when someone comes along and says, oh, we're not going to focus on that project right now. Instead, we're going to focus on this one because blah, blah, blah. Some people will be jumping thinking, oh, wonderful. This sounds new and exciting. And other people are really frustrated and de-energized by that shift, not feeling like they've been able to complete what it is that they're working on. And there are a lot of profiles out there. Sometimes we use profiles for people to help them identify their strengths and the strengths of their team. And the one that we use is Scope. And the likelihood, this it comes out with your significant seven strengths, the seven things that really energize you. The likelihood of anyone else having those significant seven strengths, those seven energizers, is one in 346,000. So like we we just never meet people who are energized by the same things as we are. And this is really important to be mindful of as a leader is that if we're not aware of that, then we can assume that people are energized by working the same way that we are. And I've made this mistake. And then you end up accidentally, unintentionally de-energizing people and teams So the first thing to do is to be really mindful of your own strengths and what gives you energy. And then once you're doing that, then you're more naturally open to just thinking about what energizes other people and how they're different to you. So like to flip this around, let me ask you both a question that you don't have to answer, but this is how to think about it. If I got you to think about a time in the last three months when you were really energized at work. So you were doing something, you were loving it, you were kind of in, you know, the the psychologist Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi says, he talks about flow, you know, we might think of it as being in the zone, you were just loving it. If you were to describe those things, then we would see some of the things that bring you energy. So that's the question to ask yourself. I love all this stuff. The construct that we've used in training for more junior people at LCP is the Myers-Briggs construct which is it's a similar concept I'm sure there's lots of difference in the detail and it's four dichotomies effectively that you get that you discuss and it is really interesting because I absolutely love all of that stuff and I find it so fascinating and I really engage with it which is partly because on the Myers-Briggs I'm I'm an extrovert so I love 
debating stuff. I love brainstorming. I love being in a room and chatting through stuff. And if you're if you're a different personality type or different strengths, then actually some people absolutely hate that whole process, which is really interesting because I, I remember saying to actually one of our sort of training leads, I was talking about giving training to more junior people. And I said, oh, can I talk about personality types? Because it's quite relevant to the, it was training on time management. And she sort of said, absolutely can. But just be aware that just because you find all of that stuff fascinating doesn't mean it will energize anyone else or or many people. So yeah, I do think, Mary, on that, that it is our responsibility when it comes to personality types. I should say personality and strengths are two different constructs, right? So you know, there are correlations, we won't get into that. But if we're talking about personality, I think that we all, not just for leaders, all professionals have a responsibility to understand ourselves, partly for the fact that then we're likely to understand how other people are different, right? And if we want to talk about our own professional development, I do a lot of work in gravitas. And, you know, people often come to me and ask me to help them increase their gravitas. One of the things is to know how to engage with people who are different to you. And a good key that you can take away, kind of a, you know, part of the toolkit is understanding different personality types. So I think some people like Mary, I'm hearing you say you think it's fun, which is great. I do too. Offline, we should have a big chat. But I also think that it's a really powerful professional skill that we have, which is about being able to adapt our style to work effectively with different people. Yeah. And I guess just linking some of those thoughts together, what's what's in my mind now is, so I know how I prefer to work. I know where I get my energy from. Let's assume I've done all of the internal thinking and soul searching and I, and I know myself completely. And I know, of course, then that other people will be different to me. To what extent does a leader then need to work in a way that isn't really how they like to work because they know that some people in their team like to work in a different way and that stops feeling so kind of authentic and how can you energize a team when the way they like to work isn't how you like to work? Accepting that a team is going to be lots of individuals that all have different needs. Yeah, it's a great question, Mary. And I I don't think there's a binary answer to this. It's not my way or your way. It's And it's the same with personality types, right? It's, are there things that I can adapt in order to increase the extent to which you are enjoying your experience of work and feeling positive about this and feeling that you're being stretched in a good way. And at the same time, I have leaders who almost take that too far to the extent that they're not getting things done or they're really struggling with their own efficiencies just because they're flexing so much. So, you know, I I think it's about just being mindful of how we like to work our own ways of working and then the people we're working with their preferences and taking that into account and being mindful and adapting where we can and having open conversations about that so you know I expect people that I work with to adapt to me as well and to help bring me energy as much as as I feel like it's my responsibility to create an environment where they feel they can bring their best authentic self to work as well yeah it's a really good point, isn't it? Because it's, it's not, I guess what you're saying is it's, it's not the goal to try and engineer a situation where you are 
spending 100% of every day on one of the things that's energizing you the most. But but just like you say, I've certainly found that just being mindful of those differences is actually quite helpful to start with. But then also, yeah, we, we work in a reasonably large organization, have quite sort of freeform roles. We have a lot of autonomy. You do have ability to engineer certain interactions that you have. And I, I've certainly found this year, for example, there have been certain groups that I've become a part of and I've kind of reflected on and thought, wow, that, that group really works sort of thing. I really got a lot from that. Let's do more of that kind of thing. And that's the kind of little insight that I think is quite nice for, you know, for all of us who, who do have a bit of control over who we're interacting with, who we're working with, to, to be able to use that to think, right, what, who are those groups where I'm kind of thinking something is just really working? And then you can yeah, try and do one more of those per week or something that yeah, really adds to your experience. So, Rebecca, in, in the last little bit of discussion, you've you've used the word gravitas and you've used the word authentic, but we haven't put them together just yet. And you have got a book out, which, well, I say you've got it out. It's been out for quite a while, I think, hasn't it? Authentic gravitas. Could you maybe just give us a sort of headline? What were you looking to achieve with the book? What are the sort of key key areas that you investigate in that in that book? Yeah, you know, I certainly didn't set out thinking, you know, certainly 20, 25 years ago, I wasn't thinking, oh, my life goal is to write a book on gravitas. But it's something that's really important to my clients and therefore it's important to me. So time and time again, particularly in coaching conversations. So, you know, a lot of our work is in teams or leadership groups and things like that. But but the privilege of that kind of one-to-one conversation with people where they really open up and, and can be quite vulnerable, people would often say, Rebecca, do you know what I really need? I need more gravitas. And they almost whisper it as if it's something that they shouldn't want or they're embarrassed to to say or that they think they can't have. And it's important. And some of them have had feedback from leaders to say, well, the thing that you really need, you know, like to be number one on this account or to be the person that we put forward for this team, you need more gravitas. But then so often that's not followed up with any clarity or clear feedback around what that actually means and how to go about developing that. And so it can feel quite intangible. The reason the the book is called and focused on authenticity, it's authentic gravitas, is that so often the sentence would be followed with, so Rebecca, do you know what I really need? I need more gravitas, but I don't want to pretend to be someone else. I don't want to pretend to be someone that I'm not. I don't want to feel like I'm faking it for my career. And I really appreciate that because authenticity is such a strong predictor it's it's such a powerful force in business and that's another trend that we've seen you know people can think that authenticity is kind of a a buzzword it's not about it's not about full transparency it's not about sticking rigidly to personality type or to anything like that it is however one of the strongest predictors we have of psychological well-being And it does lead to positive outcomes, you know, so when we look at authentic leadership, there's a whole host of positive outcomes that are a result of that. So hence the focus on authentic gravitas and how to develop it. (laughs) And in, in that sort of search for gravitas, if you like, I mean, how much of it do you think is down to the person giving that feedback, having perhaps an unhelpful mental model of what a leader or someone in a position of authority ought to sort of sound like or appear like for want of a better expression and how much of it is, of it is a genuine deficit of some of those attributes of the, the, that are 
lumped in and called gravitas? Is, is, it, is it perception or reality, do you think, that gravitas gap? I think we all have areas where we can improve, where we can have a more positive impact than we are currently. I think that's true for everyone. And we all have a gap between our intention and our actual impact, right? So how we want to show up, the impact we want to have on people and the impact we actually have, we all have have that gap. The gap is closed by useful feedback. So the best thing that we can do if somebody says, I think you need more gravitas, the best thing we can say is, okay, that's useful. Thank you. What would that look like? What would that look like for me? So that we can understand what that person is perceiving as gravitas and how they feel that we need to be different. So let's say it's in a client pitch or presentation. What exactly does that look like? And what things could I do differently to be more effective? So one of the best things you can do is just be really specific with your questions to encourage constructive feedback. But it isn't, you know, there's not one thing when it comes to gravitas, there's not one way of being, right? So let me give you an example. When I ask people, like for the research of the book, when I ask people to describe others who had gravitas, they didn't describe one personality type. And that's really important to know because we can discredit ourselves from being people who could have gravitas by thinking, I'm just not like that. I don't have the right personality type to be like that person. But there is no personality requirement for gravitas. Yeah. And that is really helpful to remember. And particularly, I suppose, yeah, when you're going through either the whether it's the sort of seven strengths or whether it's personality types or any of that stuff is that you need for a successful business, you need a mix of different people who operate differently and are energized by different things. And it's not that there's one mold for, for leaders. Yeah. Yeah. The natural question in my mind is what do you need then? <laughs> like that's what I think I'd be asking. If you don't need that, then what, what do you need? Should I speak to that for a minute? Is that helpful? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. This is great. You ask your own questions and answer them. (laughs) You're thinking that's what I'd be asking. Like, okay, that's great. I don't need a personality type. What do I need? To start with, the other thing that you don't need as much as you think you do is confidence, right? So, and I'll get on to what you do need. What I found is that when people were describing others who had gravitas, they would often say, oh, they're confident. But then when we would go and ask those people to describe themselves, they didn't say, I'm super confident, I think I'm awesome. (laughs) (laughs) They said, sometimes I look myself in the mirror and I give myself a pep talk and I say, you've got this, you can do it, you know. So we look at other people and we perceive confidence, but what we're actually seeing is the choice to be courageous, right? And so people are choosing to step up to put themselves forward for big opportunities, despite the fact that they don't always feel really comfortable doing it. When we say we want confidence, actually, that's largely what we want is that sense of I'm comfortable to do it. But I think that we should be uncomfortable in our careers a lot of the time. You know, we're we're stepping out and doing new things. Like, you know, for Dan and Mary, you seem really happy doing this and just enjoying the chat, doing the podcast. But probably the first time you're like, oh, let's start an LCP podcast. I imagine yeah, feeling a little bit unsure, right? <laughs> yeah. You really don't want to go back and listen to those early episodes. You can give that a miss. <laughs> so 
this really resonates with what we see in the research as well. When we look at what leads to effectiveness, say leadership effectiveness, what we see is coming out as the virtuous predictors are courage and integrity. You know, integrity actually fuels courage. So if we have a real sense of who we are, what matters to us, a sense of commitment to outworking that in the workplace, then that helps us to choose to be courageous. It helps us in difficult conversations to be the one to speak up. It helps us to choose to put our hand up to be the one to drive new opportunities and things. And so one thing that is important for Gravitas is having that sense of of courage. And I find that often confidence comes as a result of that. Some of the other things that are important for Gravitas, you know, before we talked about that thought leadership window, that that personal leadership window for yourself, one thing that is important is what we call self-leadership. You know, when I first heard the term self-leadership, I thought that's so stupid. How could you lead yourself? <laughs> like you can't, you, you, what? You're, where are you taking yourself? What does that look like? Leading is taking people somewhere, right? But it's about the productive habits, like good disciplines that you know that you need in order to move forward effectively. And so having that self-leadership, whether that's carving out thinking time, whether that's prioritizing your strategic objectives, whether that is making sure that you're continuing to learn and to grow yourself rather than just doing the same and not finding windows to continuing to grow in your own professional development, which is so easy to do. So self-leadership is something that's that's really important. Getting feedback from other people, we spoke about that before, and building meaningful connection. So you know, the way that Gravitas is defined in the dictionary is something like being trusted and respected, manner of self-importance, something like that. Now, the way that we use Gravitas in the world of work is absolutely people who are trusted and respected, but those people who are full of self-importance actually would not be defined as having authentic Gravitas. They're not people who are end up being trusted and respected. But being able to build really meaningful, good connections is something that's so important. And that is not just for the extroverts of the world. That's for all of us to be able to build meaningful connection in the workplace so that we can better understand people. We can better understand their challenges, their opportunities, ways that we could work together effectively. And that really creates a sense of trust and respect and and gravitas. Mm. A lot of the things you're saying here, obviously your, a lot of your business and what you do is focused on, on leaders and, and speaking to leaders, particularly in these areas. But to all these concepts, they only apply to leaders or do you see them transferring quite well to sort of a host of other sort of people as well? well? I'd say almost all of them transfer. So the book actually is not a leadership book. The book is written around, essentially, it's about how to lead without positional power, right? So how to be someone who other people might say, what is it about them? You know, there's some people in a group of peers, you look at others and you think, why does everyone stop and listen to them? Why does nobody fill their pauses? <laughs> and we know that, you know, if we lead from hierarchy and from positional power, then we get compliance. But if we lead from what we call personal power, from that, you know, from a place of positive influence, then we're more likely to get commitment that people want to be working with us and, and 
you know, following us. And so we don't need the title of leader in order to lead in the workplace. And I often think that the latter precedes the former. So we lead in the workplace and then we often end up with the title or the position of of leader. Mm -hmm. I really like that way of describing it, that the hierarchy approach leaves you with compliance because I think most people understand that you want more than compliance to have a successful business. So it's a really nice way of describing it. Rebecca, we're coming towards the final stages of today's episode, but really keen to know from you what's next on your agenda. Is there there anything that you've got like a big focus on in the next 12 months? Oh, <laughs> so many things, probably too many things. Then I'll be listening to myself talk about priorities. We're doing a lot of work in healthy cultures, but also helping organizations to take a sense check of that to know where their cultures really are, right? So, you know, we do work defining, helping organizations to define their values and stuff like that but I call them banner values. It's all very well to have the things that sit on the wall, but are those values really lived and breathed? Are they really playing out in a way that means that you are transforming your workplace and and continuing to build it in a healthy, positive way? And so some governance checks around that, you know, ESG and governance is, is such an important part of organizational life now. And culture plays a big role in that. And that stems from, again, that links to that point around this isn't an HR topic, right? So don't get me wrong, HR has a key role to play. It's every leader's responsibility and they need to know. So that's one of the things that we're working on a lot right now is helping leaders get a sense check of how healthy their cultures are and are they really outworking their values. Another thing is around we're launching an in-house program for leaders to learn the skills and even get accredited in coaching and mentoring to bring that in-house so that leaders feel equipped that they can coach and mentor their teams and make sure that there's that positive stretch. I love the the stress performance curve that you've probably seen. You know, it's an inverted U and on one axis you've got stress or pressure and on the other you've got performance. And I think it's really important that we're all mindful of where we're sitting on that. Are we in a place of cruising, which is essentially boredom, or are we in a place of positive stretch, which is where you actually have pressure and you have great performance, or are we tipping over into crisis, fatigue, strain? And what I would say is that it's where you see sustained strain, that you have to be really mindful of that. And one of the things that you can do is to coach and to mentor people around you to make sure they're really feeling positive stretch, not bored, not consistently strained, but feeling that they are moving forward, able to get into meaningful work, achieve meaningful goals for them, for the teams that they're part of. So that's some of the things that we're focusing on right now. I'm really passionate about that. Yeah, so super interesting. And just a quick, really quick question. Are you, are you finding a lot more demand in all of these areas from companies trying to understand what it all means in the kind of future of work as well, layered onto all these topics? Yes. So, you know, work is changing in so many ways so rapidly. I mean, digitalization was around long before the pandemic, but of course, hybrid working and all kinds of things like that now are such a big part of what we're thinking about in terms of work. And Globalization, you know, our teams are more spread out more than ever. Our clients are spread out. And and so the way that we work together really matters. I just think that we need to be intentional about this. 
and we need to, you know, whether that's in our, Dan, you can do this in your Friday at four o'clock session. The rest of us are ideally thinking about it on a, on a kind of Monday or Tuesday morning. But the key to building healthy workplaces and strong teams, having positive stretch for yourself and others, enjoying work, moving forward in a constructive way and feeling that you have that gravitas that that you want to be trusted and respected at work. So many of these things come from us not just being reactive and just doing things the way that we always do it amongst the busyness, but really being intentional with how we lead, how we show up with others, what kind of colleague we are, what kind of consultant we are, and just being purposeful with the impact that we have on others and how we want to outwork our our working life. Mm. Fantastic. Rebecca, as we start to wrap up now, I'd love to know what the one thing is that you'd like listeners to take away from this. We've covered so much. I think I'd say your joy at work really matters. And it's not always perfect, right? We we definitely have windows where we're not enjoying work or it's just so much pressure and we're not finding moments of joy in there. But the research shows us, like I said, it impacts cognitive performance. It impacts how able we are to do our work well, how able we are to innovate, to create, to move things forward, to engage well with other people. And so if you're finding yourself in a season, moments are okay. But if you're in a season where you're really not enjoying work, I think it's time to think about how you can make some positive changes. And sometimes those are just small things. Sometimes they're big things, but I'd encourage you to talk to people around you about that. Think about who you trust, what leaders or colleagues do you have that you trust that you could seek advice from and talk to about it because I'm amazed at how many people say to me, I'm only just coping or I'm maybe not coping. And when I ask, they haven't told anyone else in their workplace and that's concerning to me. So as great leaders and as great colleagues, let's check in with each other more than just the, how are you? Oh, yeah, I'm fine. Good. Da, da, da. But okay. And actually carving out windows, it can just be 15 minutes. But what are you enjoying? What are you not enjoying? What would make things better for you at work? There's just carving out some moments like that. I think we can put our hand up, rethink how we do things and really support each other more effectively. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point, isn't it? That, that joy at work point, I think, really stayed with me after you, you spoke to all of us, what was it, back in, in February at the LCP Partner Forum. And, and I love the way you drew the distinction there between joy and happiness and joy and fun, because they aren't the same thing. And I do think they get confused a lot of the time. You can take joy from, as you said, a variety of different experiences, whereas fun is a more particular, particular type of thing. Fun is good too. Don't get me wrong. I'm pro fun. I'm absolutely pro fun. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's yeah. just different, isn't it? It's just different. So, what what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about this whole area? I would say the most underappreciated thing about all of this is just how powerful the impact it has in all of our work. These. Research findings resonate across industries, across job roles, across geographies, and I think that we can underestimate just how powerful an impact it can have, not just on our own experience of work, but on our own ability to reach our potential at work and the impact it can have on 
the teams that we create in terms of are they healthy teams and are they thriving teams and therefore are they high performing teams mm. yeah which speaks right back to i think one of your very first points around culture and how that's shifted over recent years yeah Fantastic. And Rebecca, final question from me. Do you have any recommendations for the listeners? We've already got your book down, of course, so we'll link to that in the show notes. Anything else that you'd recommend listeners check out? Oh, so many good things that I love. This sounds really obvious and generic, but I think Harvard Business Review blogs are an underutilized resource by a lot of people. You know, it is a three to five minute read and designed so well that you can get some you know the the people who are contributing have done a lot of research and have a lot of work experience so they're really robust ideas that you can trust but then it's very practical so i i can't underestimate enough just how powerful that can be to just build it into part of your habits excellent we'll check them out I like that one. I'm quite a big fan of them as well, actually. Yeah, they, you can follow them on LinkedIn. They do quite a good job of flagging out the blogs and stuff. And you, you've written for them, haven't you, a couple of times mm. as well? Yeah, I write quite often for HBR. I really respect them. And Forbes as well is another great, great place. And then obviously the Investment LCP podcast. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Of those course. early those <laughs> early episodes, right? The shaky voices. <laughs> yeah, we'll scratch yeah. those ones. Yeah, listen to a really early one and a really recent one and and see what see what the difference is <laughs> good well rebecca it's been an absolutely brilliant conversation today really enjoyed it thank you so much for your time thanks so much for having me great to be with you thanks rebecca really enjoyed this episode hope the audience did too that's it from us this week on investment uncut but check out the episode next week take care Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.